Hello and welcome to Web Perspectives, the soft skills podcast for web developers. Today we welcome Philip Young onto the show to talk about the latest developments in the Microsoft.NET ecosystem. A senior backend developer, Philip specializes in .NET and C-Sharp and Microsoft Azure, focusing on databases and identity. He holds multiple Microsoft certifications in both Azure and the Microsoft Data Platform. Is .NET still a thing in 2023? If so, how does it compare to other full-stack frameworks like Next.js, Nux.js, and SvelteKit, or even Astro? How does C-sharp stack up against modern languages such as Rust or Go? What about XAML? How does XAML stack up against HTML? Does .NET in 2023 still mean vendor lock-in to Microsoft products? As web development technologies continue to grow, with libraries such as React becoming full-stack frameworks with server-side actions like Next, Nux, Remix, and all that, how can we make sense of this transition and keep our sanity? Does meditation really work to ground ourselves? Do we really have to choose a web development path and stick with it in order to cut all the noise out in the industry? What about breaks? How many breaks should we take? Philip draws from his over 10 years experience as yoga practitioner and software developer to give us the full lowdown in this 90 minute episode of Web Perspectives. Hello and welcome to Web Perspectives, the web development soft skills podcast. Put the soft skills back into software and supercharge your web development career. Welcome to the show, Philip. Hi, nice to be here. So let's give a little bit of a backstory of how we met. We met at uh, Pixels and Pints. We've talked about Pixels and Pints so much on the show, right, Mike? I think every episode we bring it up. Yep. So much, but we, we all love Pixels. We are huge Pixels fans. In fact, we had Tony on the show a while back, self-plug there. But before any of that, I'm really excited to have you on the show, Philip, because you are one of the first .NET developers that I've met. Wow, honored. <laughs> <laughs> but but the interesting spin here is that obviously Microsoft has a lot of ownership of the web development space. A lot of us know about Visual Studio Code, VS Code, and uh, we had the interesting conversation about another IDE, which a lot of developers use, which is called Visual Studio, not VS Code. <laughs> so it's interesting because there is a difference here, but uh, you primarily work in the back end, right? That's right. Yeah. So yeah, my main home would be in, I guess I'd call it traditional Visual Studio, right? But I, I do move over to VS Code kind of back and forth depending on what I'm doing. But um, it's funny, I guess from working in, like I keep calling it traditional, I guess in, in old, the old world Visual Studio or whatever you want to call it, the, the big application Visual Studio, I, I got so used to working in there with all the keyboard shortcuts and everything. And depending on what you're doing, it's just got more advanced tooling to do certain things like debugging and things like that. That's like primarily what I work in, but I do like, you know, VS Code is very lightweight. It has a lot of the same capabilities. It's just kind of like what I've gotten used to, I guess. Some of the older projects, I think like the previous .NET framework stuff may not work in VS Code. I'm not sure in that one, but I know that one is like a Windows only product. Like it's part of the old Microsoft, if I could say that, or just the way they used to do stuff, right? Mm. So um, we're sitting here, and before we get started, we were talking about a little bit about yeah. what got you involved in writing code. And I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here because I haven't gotten the whole story yet, but I think you and myself and definitely my son, who's 11 right now, all started by working with video games. Is that correct? 
That's right. Yeah, yeah. So actually, both my parents work in IT. You know, sound like you you do as well, right? And actually, so growing up, we weren't allowed to have a traditional like video game console, like a Nintendo or anything like that that was just designed to play games on a dedicated form. But we were allowed to have a computer, and we were allowed to have games on the computer. So. Growing up, I have a brother as well, and that, that's who I was playing this game that I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about. But it was actually really interesting because how I got into my games was using DOS. If, if you guys remember good old DOS or oh, like yeah. command prompt, which is still present, right? So I was learning how to navigate the file system using the command line. Without knowing this, I just knew how to get into the game, right? You type in Robin to get in, it's Robin.exe to get into the Robin Hood game that I loved or, or what have you, right? So... So me and my brother, when we were kids, at one point we had two computers next to each other, right? And this is going to take us back to the 90s, but we were playing, it was almost like pre-land gaming where like, so we figured out that you could use something called a serial port to connect the two computers together, which is like this like eight pin connector that it kind of looked like a printer connection from back in the day. Anyway, we so we used that, we connected both the computers together, we, we borrowed one from his work, like he brought it home one day and we were so happy and we used to play Warcraft 2, which was a great game, but also we used to play another one called Baldur's Gate. And I don't know, have you guys played Baldur's Gate or heard much about it? Or uh, I've heard of it. I'm familiar with it. I haven't played it myself personally, although I am very limited in my gaming knowledge, let's say. Ah, uh, okay, okay. I remember this game. I think I remember this game. It's like the classic D&D lore. Didn't D&D start from Baldur's Gate? I'm pretty sure it has something to do with D&D. Correct me if I'm wrong, Philip. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think it was the other way around. Baldur's Gate uses the D&D rule set underneath. So like it's like a top-down RPG game, yeah, right? But, yeah, um, like a rogue And you level up the characters. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And then as you level up your characters, it, it rolls the dice for you. Like you're... I hope the people listening will correct me on this because I don't my, my D and D knowledge isn't completely there, but like you know, it rolls like your D twenty and whatnot to do your level ups. And actually, as you're fighting the monsters in the game, it's also doing the rolling in the background, and that's how it decides your critical hits and whatnot. But anyway, so yeah, that was a big part of well, part of my childhood for sure is playing computer games, right? And that's really what got me interested in this. And I was talking to my brother, and interestingly, both that were talking like we, we really wanted to work at this company. It was uh, called Bioware. You guys have probably heard oh, yeah. of it out of Edmonton there. So um, yeah, I was just like, oh, I really want to work at this place. Really want to make video games, and that's kind of where I got all started, right? And they released Baldur's Gate three a couple of days ago. It's a different studio called Larian Studios that they've done some other amazing RPGs. And to me, they were like the right people to take this on. But it's something like 20 years after Baldur's Gate 2 and they re-released this game and it was like so good. Like we, we were playing next to each other and computer oh. to computer once again. And it's like the old days and um, it was amazing. So, yeah. I wonder if you've heard of a game called Gauntlet. I remember playing this as well. It's very similar to Baldur's Gate. You know, I, I played like one of the later iterations, like Gauntlet Leg Legacy or something on, I think it was on the N64. It was yeah. kind of like a top-down. Yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah. the one. I had so much fun playing that game. I remember having all my friends over at the campground where I used to spend a lot of time because all we really did is play video games. <laughs> We'd play those games and then together, you know, fight off the monsters. And it was really my first exposure to the roguelike genre. And for those of our listeners who don't know what roguelike means, think of like Mario, but like top down, like you have to kill enemies and squash them from top down. And then you go to like through different dungeons and defeat the enemies and you get different abilities. But it gets really complicated and really fun and chaotic as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Same thing here. And there's a fair amount of dialogue as well. And it's just a beautiful game. Like, you know, you're going down retro lane a bit, but they've, they've just done a great job with it. So yeah, I was, that's what I was doing last night, actually, until about 
I think midnight we cut it off. Like we're, we're not as young as we used to be, but <laughs> I want to ask a question about what you said about your parents restricting your video game access, because this leads really well into a question that I had for you about taking breaks. Did your parents tell you you couldn't get like a Nintendo 64 and they said you can only play games on a computer? Did I hear that right? Yeah, it was. I, I think the idea was we, they did. They let us rent game consoles, like from from good old Blockbuster, you know. <laughs> and some of your listeners might be too young to remember that, or they've seen memes about it. But we just weren't allowed to own a dedicated machine like that. And I, I couldn't really understand why, because when you're a kid, you don't really understand why these things are done. But that's right. Yeah, we were allowed to have computer games, and there was actually these really good educational games on PCs as well back in the '90s. So that you know, like you would in, in between playing, there was like some math, or there was like one that helps you learn typing with Mario as well and oh so there, there were some good uh, some other good parts of this too but yes you're right to go back to your original question and what was the reason behind that like why we weren't allowed because you are playing video games you're playing video games regardless so how is it different if you play video games on a Nintendo 64 versus playing video games on a computer you know that, that's a great question. I, I, that'd be a good question to ask my, my parents. But I think I think what it came down to, because we asked them later in life about this, was having a dedicated box that you press an on switch on and it immediately turns and in, goes into a game immediately, versus like having something you can also use for word processing. And I think part of it too was having us learn DOS, like using the command line to get into our games. Oh. Like like when I got into university, it was like, oh, I already know how to do some of this stuff, right? Because like from way back when, because you know you're navigating the command line to get into your game, right? Like I was able to do this when I was like five. <laughs> so, you know, it was, um, I mean, with a little bit of help. And then, then eventually I just memorized the commands, right? So I think that's part, that was part of it. Yeah. Yeah, I started with a Commodore VIC-20 and everything was command line based at the time. And writing basic was the thing at that time. I remember my mother had a similar thing about not wanting us to necessarily have a dedicated gaming platform because it didn't open us up to and expose us to computer literacy, which considering this is in the 1980s because i'm freaking old as dirt now <laughs> we had uh <laughs> she knew at that time that computer literacy was going to be an important part of my future as i grew up even though she could not program the vcr and she had no computer literacy herself uh, she even struggled with a tablet later in her life but she knew that just being exposed to that would give us an advantage in some ways as computers became more popular and, and of course they did and communicating online became more popular and so she made sure that i had a, a new modem every two years so that i could keep up with the technology and it was interesting because she was the first one who also taught me that i needed to keep track of the time that i consume versus the time that i create and it was this concept of consumption versus creation that I still struggle with to this day because while I do enjoy playing video games, I consider that consumption. Creating video games, on the other hand, when I was a kid, that was creation. And so I would spend part of my time consuming and part of my time creating. And so I tried to balance it out 50-50. So every hour I spent playing a game, I would spend an hour programming a game. And I was pretty strong and for an 11 12 year old to keep up with that that would i i look back at it right now like actually that was that's pretty impressive but i did i created my first video game when i was 11 and i started selling it on the playground literally when i was 12 on tapes and floppies to all the other kids around the playground and i was able to make enough that i could buy my first pc computer and learn dos and my first monitor the first actual monitor because my Commodore was plugged into a TV at the time. Yeah, it was 
she knew that if she put this tool in my hand with the right mindset that I would take over and, and I would run with it. So yeah, that's, that, that was her thinking on that point. Yeah, that, that's really cool. I would agree. I think that it was huge for computer literacy, just that story you just told me or the one that I told you about navigating and getting into games and using the early version of Windows. And I thank them actually for that now, like later in life, like at the time it was hard to understand. And, and similar to what you, we had breaks, so we had limits too. It was like, hey, now it's, it's time to go outside now. Like you can't just sit here and like, you know, we're, when we're kids, we just want to keep going, right? It's like, oh, this is so good. I just want to keep playing and like, you know, but yeah, we had those limits too, which was good, so. Yeah, I would I would often hear the get out of the house. I don't want to see it till you're hungry or it's dark out. You know, yeah, those ones. <laughs> I think that's a really, really big problem in today's society, right? All these apps, all the social media is built to keep you engaged, right? That's why we have all the blue filters trying to get people off, like social fixer. If you guys have ever tried that on Facebook, I don't know who uses Facebook anymore. But anyway, anyway, all this social media stuff is designed to keep you engaged. And it becomes harder and harder to disconnect yourself from that constant flow of dopamine hits. And I think that applies especially for video games. So a lot of video games, you know, have an incentive to get built with what we would call in the web industry, dark UX patterns of methods to keep you engaged at the expense of potentially your own health. So one of the questions, and I know we've, we've talked about this to some degree already, Philip, because you have some experience with mindfulness practices, but what do you think is a reasonable amount of time to spend, like given your discipline of your parents and having grown up with only a limited amount of time on computers and video games? <laughs> Now that you've grown up, what would you say is a reasonable approach to consuming media? Like how much time before you disconnect and say, okay, time to actually create or disconnect and maybe read a book or go to sleep? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and it's interesting as, as we become the adults, we no longer have the person, we're, we're now the person that's keeping ourselves in check, right? So we, we could just sit there for eight hours and just play or you know uh, swipe or you know what have you or what's it you know going down the timeline that never ends you know um uh, that's that's a tough question in today's world i mean i want to say like you know not counting work time like if you work in front of a screen obviously that's a different story because that's what you do for a job but i want to say like maybe two hours max outside of work time I don't know if you guys use or seen this. I have like a, an Android phone and I use the digital well-being settings that like allow you to track the amount of time you're using apps for. And it does actually cut you off at a certain period. So you could set time limits for yourself. And so I, like, for example, I've set Instagram at like 20 minutes and then all of a sudden it says, hey, you're almost out of time. And then when it cuts you off, it turns the app gray and you try to click on it, it doesn't let you open it. Of course, it's pretty easy to extend the limits because the phone manufacturers don't want you to obviously lose access to your, the thing that you love that you bought from them but I found that's really helpful the only problem I've found with that setting is when I'm in creation mode like when I'm creating stories or doing something that I'm using more time so I've increased the time to do that but then the time stays stuck at that and then you know you kind of it gets out of control a little bit too right it's like oh I've left this at an hour because I was creating something but now it's still at an hour so yeah I try to uh, get that away from my computer when I'm not at work that's pretty much what I do now I I write code all day. I don't want to write code in the evening anymore, and I pretty much don't want to be at my desk anymore. It's, it's slowly killing me sitting in this chair all this time. So I've taken up other hobbies that don't involve computers or electronics. So for example, the house that we bought a year ago came with a greenhouse in the backyard. 
my wife and I aren't gardeners before that, but we thought, oh, this might be an interesting hobby. And then I found out that some of the woodworking skills and the home renovation skills that I learned flipping the last house that we owned would be handy to build stuff for the garden. And now I'm working on raised beds and water capture and containment for the air climate that we live in here in Calgary. And I find that if I'm at my workbench in the garage and I'm creating something, that helps in so many different ways. You know, I've lost 80 pounds now since January of 2021. So it's been a real benefit for me to just get away from all that stuff. The social media was never an issue for me. I was never heavily invested in it. In fact, I haven't had a Facebook account in five years and I never had an Instagram account. So screen time has been something that I've been myself pushing away from for a long time already. My problem now is sometimes I'll go a little too hard and a little too late in the garage and then my neighbor will come over. (laughs) 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 Do you know it's midnight? (laughs) No, I shouldn't say that. He's actually a really nice guy (laughs) who sometimes works late himself in his own garage. We share tools. But, you know, setting other goals for myself outside of screen time is generally how I balance my world anyways. Yeah, I think the best days that I have, I spend more time outside or doing something other than staring at a computer screen. As much as I want to think that a great day is a productive day, a productive day is probably spending time away from the screen. And it took me years to realize that. It took me traveling multiple countries around the world. And Philip, maybe you can speak to this as well if you've had your own experience traveling. But for me, getting away from all the three computer screens, the whole elaborate setup that I have at home really got me to detach from those attachments, those habits that I'd built up of thinking it's okay to spend eight to 10 hours a day or longer, because a lot of our listeners do at least spend eight hours a day because they'll, you know, nine to five at a minimum staring at a computer screen. So... I don't know what your experience was, but for me, getting away from those screens really helped to realize that computers are not everything. (laughs) Yeah, that's very well said. And similar story here, like work all day at the desk, right? And then sometimes my, my leisure activity was computer games, right? So exit work mode, enter play mode, but you're still sitting in the same place. You're still looking at the same monitor and those, what are those rays that come out of it, you know, that are the the bright thing that you're looking into and you're still sitting in the same position. So you're still doing the same thing to your body. And sometimes at the end of the week, you would just feel internally like I was just drained, you know, like I would get to Saturday and I would just be just exhausted, right? And to kind of speak to what you're talking about too, I um, recently did a trip to Bali where I did a yoga instructor training. Yeah. I don't want to hear about this. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So this is where the mindfulness Mm -hmm. comes into play, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So in my previous job, I worked at a big IT consulting firm, which got quite busy at times. Like sometimes they have you staffed on multiple projects, which is kind of like working multiple jobs. You know, your experience level goes way up, but also it's quite quite a lot. But the one thing that I always had, I started doing yoga just for your listeners probably about 10 years ago and about 2013 is when I started getting really serious about it. And it's kind of an interesting story how I got into it too. But 
one thing that I had while I was doing that job and uh, was I always went to my Tuesday night yoga class, right? There was no ifs, ands, or buts. I would leave work maybe 20 minutes early, get on the train. Like this is back back in the old days when we used to work in an office, right? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah back in the, the olden times. Or I know people still work in offices, but that was like one of my non-negotiables, right? And I, I just knew in my mind that going to that would help me. And it did help me a lot, you know, it helped me keep going. And, and like you said, get away from the screens. And then when you go in the room, like in the studio, you're putting your wallet, your keys, your cell phone in the room, like, in, sorry, in like the change room, right? Like you're, you're not in there with any connected devices and you might be in there for like a 60 or a 90 minute class. And it's wonderful, right? Like you, you can feel the energy of everyone around you and the breathing, like when you, in the yoga, we, we talk about the breath, right? Just the act of breathing and feeling your breath and clearing your mind. Like when you work in tech, there's just so much that starts to go into your mind, right? You're thinking about this problem or that problem or, you know, debugging this really hard thing. And it, it can be quite draining, right? On your, on your mind. And then it might still be in there. Like, and if you go play a computer game after work, it might, you know, you might aggravate it a bit. Like I would play like competitive games, like, uh, like battlefield, right. Where I'm yeah. playing against a whole bunch of other people. And, um, but yeah, anyway, so the yoga completely removed me from all that. And like you said, the, the mindfulness component is huge, right? The act of just clearing your mind, taking a breath, right feeling what it feels like to breathe like because sometimes when you're at the computer these aren't really top of mind right so like how you're sitting even right like you might be sitting in a not so great position because you're trying to fix something right so after practicing yoga for quite a while and I, I really got into it like I tried a few different styles and it just kept deepening my practice further and I knew it was more than just the physical practice of yoga which for your listeners they're interested is called the asana practice so we have the asana practice, which is the physical practice of yoga, but there's other parts of yoga as well that are inside, like the mind, right? Like the, the mindfulness component. Um, <clears throat> if you take it a step further, like being a proper yogi can be how you're living, right? So how you behave towards others, how you treat your own body and, and yourself and your mind. So it can go pretty, it's, it's a bit of a rabbit hole for sure, but it, it's quite interesting. Mike, have you done any of the yoga stuff before? No, actually, I haven't. I was really deeply into Tai Chi, which is somewhat similar. And other, I studied other martial arts when I was younger in university, but I gave all of that up when life got crazy. Actually, 11 years ago, right before my son was born, I was in an Aikido class and I broke my collarbone and I was like, oh. you know, I can't, I can't be in a cast <laughs> and have a baby in the house. So yeah, I quit uh, 11 years ago. But um, no, yoga, I've never done that. And I've often, I've often been curious about it, but I don't know, I don't know if I'd feel comfortable just showing up for a drop-in class. Like I wouldn't even know the first thing to do. Like I know I need a mat, but like, <laughs> like blue jeans aren't gonna cut it. <laughs> I'm guessing <laughs> I can't even touch my toes anymore. But yeah, it, it seems like it would be a much lower impact kind of thing than throwing yourself at somebody else who then throws you to the left to the right depending it's something i've been curious about i just don't know what that would look like at all yeah so they, they do have all levels classes and but i definitely understand your intimidation like i know when i started out I, actually I'll, I'll tell your listeners they might kind of kind of funny and actually it ties into video games again but so originally where i started out was um it was like about 2011 and i got this game called we fit on the wii if you ever remember this game oh like a balance yeah board. i love the wii <laughs> Oh, it was, it was great. so great. Yeah. We uh we we used to have people over for uh we parties all the time and the the you know, there'd be people fighting. No, no, it's my turn. No. <laughs> that was really good. Yeah. We liked that one. 
Oh yeah, it was great. You know, so it started, you know, I started playing it and then I started building, you can build your own little fitness program through it. So I made like a practice that was like half strength exercises, but the other half was yoga. Right. And I was doing that for quite a while. And like, you're on this balance board and it helps you adjust like where your weight should be. Right. Like you, you know, you're in your warrior two position, you kind of, it wants you to put more weight on the front foot. So it, it does help you. And, you know, it was, I, I found myself really enjoying it. Right. And then I was telling some of my colleagues at my work about this. And then one of them said, oh, you got to come to a studio now, right? So <laughs> I guess that's where it all started, right? And But I do remember my first class. I was, of course, there's no more space in the class. So I had to go to the front of the class, which if you're a beginner, usually it's nice to have people in front of you. <laughs> and that didn't happen. So I had to look back quite a bit and I was nervous. And, but I got through it, right? And I was invigorated, right? I was like, this is really cool. And you know, I just kept growing on from there. And eventually it just became like, all of a sudden I was like, well, I've been doing this for six years. And then I joined this Ashtanga practice here in town. That was, Ashtanga is a style of yoga, by the way, but it was modeled on this city in India called Mysore, which is where this style of yoga was founded. And the way they teach yoga is they start at like five or 6 a.m. in the morning. And actually similar to your uh, fighting style background there, I, I kind of want to call it a dojo. Like it's like you go there and they have a set of poses that you do in a row called the primary series. And the instructors only teach you the next pose when they decide you're ready. So every day you come in and you do the first couple. And then like my first day, they sent me home after like 15 minutes. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I'm, I've been doing this for like six years. I know I do all this. They're like, no, no, you, you do these first. And then by the end, like about six months later, I was there for like an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and 20. And um, it was really cool, right? Like, you know, kind of doing your own thing. And there's the instructors are just teaching you how to go to the next pose, but everyone is just doing the sequence in their minds to themselves. And then it was a beautiful practice. It was also very challenging. And the, the only thing that I, I had to stop, unfortunately, but it was, uh, I found it was using so much of my physical energy. Like I would go to work and I was just wiped, you know, like <laughs> I was trying to eat all this protein and drink all this coffee, but I was like, this is beautiful, but I have to stop, unfortunately. So, but yeah. What surprises me is you said it's more of a mental exercise, but you said you're physically exhausted. So how does that work? Oh, that's a great question. So you're breathing the whole time. Like I was saying, like you're supposed to be right. Um, the idea is especially in this style of yoga, that you're breathing through your nose and you're engaging the back of your throat, which is called the ujjayi breath. And um, yeah, and it's almost like when you're breathing out, it's like you're trying to fog a mirror or like you're Darth Vader for some of your Star Wars fans, you know. <laughs> Something like that. Something like that, right? Like the, yeah. Very <laughs> wide open mouth, just like pushing air out of your mouth. <laughs> well, I actually, mouth closed and then just strictly through your nose, right? Oh. But, but what this does is, so you are doing some, you know, and later on you're doing some more intensive physical practice. It is it's challenging, right? But because you're doing this action of breathing, like I mentioned, you're um, actually calming your parasympathetic system just by breathing through your nose, right? You're basically telling your system that like, you know, you got your two nervous systems, right? Your sympathetic system and the parasympathetic one. And your sympathetic is your uh, fight or flight response, right? So by breathing like this, you're telling your body that like, hey, it's okay. Like I'm doing yoga. I'm fine. I'm in this beautiful studio. If you're kind of holding your breath, your body's like clenching a little bit, right? And it's like, well, I don't know what you're doing right now, but I'm not comfortable, right? So that's kind of where the mindfulness aspect, well, one of them comes into play, right? That holding your breath thing, that is a developer thing. When you, <laughs> you, know, you, hit, you hit control S, right? And then you hit F5 and you're like, please work, please work. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. you're, you're in production after hours and it's like, oh, you know, doing a deployment or something. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, all day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we do that a lot, actually. This is just uh, really helpful to know that, you know, maybe there's there's those periods of times where we need to calm that other system down and just breathe through the nose for a little while and focus on that once in a while. Speaking of taking breaks throughout the day and trying to get those anxiety levels down that we feel from writing code. I'm not sure a lot of people who don't write code for a living understand how stressful writing code can be on not just our mental capacities, but our physical capacities as well. When I was younger, I worked my way through university and paid for it a lot by working in shipping and receiving. And when I told them that I was working towards computer science and writing code they were like oh well you know any day you can sit in a chair all day inside is better than working in the warehouse or i did roofing for a weekend <laughs> i didn't yeah. even make it through the third day it's like oh that was a hard job well yeah there's a lot of hard jobs out there that are physically demanding when i was about three or four years in full time i would come home and i would be um, mentally exhausted emotionally exhausted physically exhausted i really didn't have a whole lot left in the gas tank in in any way shape or form and i had to come to some sort of truth about my value as a developer is not directly related to the number of lines that i can produce on a daily basis and and pushing to hit 200 pushing to hit 300 400 lines in a day it really sunk home probably three or four years into the career that that wasn't my value right my value wasn't in the number of lines of code my value was in uh, the quality of the line of code let's say that i was writing and you know sometimes it can take you a day to write that one line of code but that one line of code could have a direct and immediate impact on the user or on the on the company as a whole you know, one good algorithm, right, can shape an entire company. One bad algorithm can ruin an entire company. So, yeah, it was that you know, on, on this show, we tried to, or at least I try to focus on hitting that junior developer, intermediate developer, and senior developer areas, right? And so I think we mentioned it before on the show that junior developers always struggle with that number of lines of code that they can produce as a developer with years of experience. Would you agree with that scenario? The scenario of the the quality versus quantity, essentially, for lines yeah. of code, or yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, it's like you said, like you know, that it, it can make all the difference, even in terms of performance, right? If you write something one way versus the other way, without, you know, for example, going to go research the SDK that you're using, seeing what kind of methods you could be using instead. You know, if you're just focused on getting it done, or I mean, more more for junior people as well, just really understanding. If you're using a library, I keep using library as an example, but you know what I mean, right? Like just really under, or understanding the language you're using and making sure that you're using it to the, the best of its ability, essentially, right? Yeah, right. That's uh, we, we tend to focus on ourselves, right? Like we're always, this is me, this is my job, this is my responsibilities, I'm going to do this. As a junior, it was always, if I couldn't get 200 lines of code in a day, I would work late to try and hit 200 lines of code because that to me was like the minimum and I really didn't look at what anybody else was producing. I didn't look at anybody else's commits. I didn't look at anybody else's number of lines of code. I I have no idea where 200 popped into my head. I have no idea. Uh, it was just kind of a weird thing. For me, the, the idea of features becomes more important. I think juniors want to get more features in because it's like adding another technology to their resume. I don't mean to attack juniors at all because I know I felt the same way. When I started my career, I wanted to get as much 
stuff, whether that be lines of code or features into the working code. It's like a dog, you know, pissing, (laughs) making its mark, right? Like claiming the territory saying like, you can do this. This is mine. Like I've done this. Because I think a lot of the juniors, they come in with a, we've talked about this on the show, imposter syndrome. They might feel limited in terms of what they can and cannot do. So at the beginning of their careers, they want to get as much in as they can, whether that's lines of code or 200 lines of code or features. But as I've become more advanced and more senior, I think what comes to my mind is more features. How many features, how many merge requests, how many pull requests can this developer get in? And it really becomes that mindset, that holding your breath thing that we talked about, because you're hoping that every other senior developer or staff engineer will approve of that pull request or merge request and then hopefully merge it. And if that doesn't happen, then you get this gut feeling and it's like, (gasps) kind of take a breath. (laughs) Oh no, now I might be in trouble. Now this won't look good. Yeah, very well said. It's interesting to think about the kind of metrics that we can hold against developers, especially junior ones, right? Like that that performance thing I mentioned, that, that won't be immediately obvious right off the bat, right? But later on when, you know, for example, we're in production or, and that might've been missed on the the code review or or maybe someone just didn't know. And then you go and write that one line of code that saves the day, right? And you've moved this from X amount of seconds down to milliseconds, right? And, you know, and and that's just one line of code using that count of lines metric, right? So it's tricky, right? I mean, they can, they took out Amazon by missing a semicolon in a config file. So, (laughs) 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 so Philip, for developers that might feel very worried or concerned about their stature in their, in the workplace, they might have just started a, a job as a junior developer. What types of exercises can they do to ground themselves to get that mindfulness how might they do those breathing exercises that you mentioned? Can they replicate the same types of exercises at their desks? Or would it be better for them to go into a more controlled environment like a yoga studio? You know, that's a great question. And for myself, that whole breathing through your nose thing, I, I still do that sometimes before I have to present something, for example, which doesn't happen too often. And actually doing the yoga instructor training, I, I had quite a fear of public speaking that was on and off over the years, but that, that really helped me with that. But but I still do it. I mean, like I, I play beach volleyball when I'm about to do my serve, I'll breathe in through my nose, breathe out through my nose right before I actually do the serve. And I find it helps me a lot because it just, again, helps kind of just get that grounding going. And to go back to your original point, I think, you know, if we're in that stressful situation or they're trying to get their stature at a company and they're feeling like, oh, I really just got to, you know, sometimes if you're thinking that way or find yourself backed in a corner, you are at your desk. You can just take a moment. You can ground your feet on the ground, just feel what it feels like to be yourself in the moment and just breathe, right? Like just even just close your eyes or, or you could remove yourself from the environment for a moment. Like, like to use that example we used from earlier, like sitting in front of your computer, your brain still knows you're there, right? So if you need to remove yourself from the environment and just go outside for a quick walk, let the sun hit your face. You know, there's, there's still a, a caveman inside us essentially that remembers what the sun was, right? Because the sun was part of what woke us up in, during the, the day, right? So to be honest, I don't do it as often as I should, but I try to do that in the mornings, for example, like, you know, if you work remotely, Sometimes going out in the first thing in the morning is not always the easiest thing, right? But you go outside and you kind of let that natural part of your body remember, okay, you know, like it, it helps you wake up. It might even be better than coffee sometimes, which I know is kind of heresy to say in uh-huh. uh, this kind of podcast. I love my coffee, but yeah. 
I, uh, I I I live about five doors down from a Tim Hortons, so maybe I'll, I'll stop making coffee at home. I'll go for a walk in the morning from now on. Or just walk to the Tim Hortons and kill two birds with one stone. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm by a Starbucks myself. I'll, I'll go for a walk. It, it costs me a little more money, but I try to remind myself. It's like, hey, you know what? Get outside of the house. Get away from the desk and just and interact with someone too, right? Like, you know... <laughs> It's 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 good overall, right? If you can do it, depending on how busy you are. But you know, what? that really brings to mind for me the bigger picture of yes, we are all software developers, but there's so much more than just software. Yes, a lot of our lives have been transformed by software. I don't doubt that for one second. Google Maps, like you've talked about on this show, Mike, has changed the way that people navigate in the world. I can find a place to stay within five minutes using Airbnb if I find myself in a new country. That's stuff that we didn't have 20 years ago. So technology has changed the way that we navigate in the world, but that doesn't mean that it's everything. And all it takes sometimes is a walk outside and a breath of fresh air to realize that there's so much more in this world than just our jobs and our hobbies. I was listening to a YouTuber just today, actually, and she was interesting because she said, like, you don't have to concern yourself with your reputation. Reputation is so important to so many people, right? Especially for junior developers who are just starting in their careers. They want to make sure that they do the best job that they can so that they can ascend the ranks and become more senior and make that coveted six to seven figure salary. Usually that's the objective. And maybe it's, hopefully it's not, maybe it's something more genuine, like they genuinely like software and they really want to learn more about it and they want to do the best they can and change the world, maybe some bigger objective. But regardless, those objectives take over and they prevent people from taking a step back and seeing like, oh, there are birds in the sky. There's nature. I can isolate myself from my computer for a week and really sort of take a step back, understand that there's more than just software. But it's so hard to get to that point because we'll make excuses. We'll tell ourselves that we have commitments, we have family, we have, you know, take care of other people in our family, maybe bring in the money. It just becomes so much of a challenge for people to isolate themselves from computers these days. But taking a breath might be the first start. But how can developers get to the point where they can take longer, maybe even like a day or two, like, is there a technique that you might advise, Philip, for that sort of thing of isolating for longer periods of time? Yeah, that, that's a great question. One thing I wanted to speak to about that, that that I was lucky to do is when I was in Bali, I was doing that instructor training. And um, I, I remember like I, I did a little bit, I, I worked remotely because I was, I was there. I'm actually, I did two trainings while I was there. So I was there for two months, which was great. But anyway, that first month I hadn't gone on a computer. And then I remember when I opened up my laptop and started working, I hadn't been on a computer for a month. And I don't remember the last time that had happened. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I was working and there was just, it was pretty challenging bug, had to dig through a whole bunch of logs and try to piece together what had happened. And I remember it was about an hour into working and I just like, I took a moment. I was like, wow, like I just felt like my neurons were all firing and stuff. And I'm like, wow, is this what I do all day? You know? <laughs> so <laughs> back to Mike's point, like it's, it's quite a intensive thing to do on in your mind and your brain right so and we have to remember that we're not just sitting in front of a computer or you're not just sitting in front of a couch watching tv right there's a lot going on right so 
Yeah, but to go back to your question, I think in, in a smaller form of that, for me, what, what's really helped is I have some physical activities that I do outside, like outside of, you know, um, IT work, like yoga, obviously, but I also do wall climbing. Uh, I play beach volleyball, like in a rec league, but, you know, or, or whatever kind of kind of suits you for activities or, you know, hiking is another one that I do. But yeah, the great thing about hiking, actually, to use that as an example, is you get out there, it's, it can be any level of walking you want. Like hiking can get pretty difficult or it can be fairly easy, but you get out there. Sometimes you're in an area where there's no reception. So it's like a forced detox. But once you get in those environments or those sports that I mentioned, I find like I can just feel all that part of my brain that was all stressed or whatever, just kind of starting to melt. Like, you know, I'll be halfway up the wall at wall climbing and uh, wall climbing is actually kind of interesting. It's kind of like a puzzle, you know, like for people that developers who like to solve puzzles, you know, you're trying to figure out how to climb these walls based on the colors of the holds. And sometimes it's, it's a puzzle someone else has built for you. Right. But you know, I'm up there on the wall and, and there's honestly no time to be stressed or to think about these problems. You're just kind of focusing on the now, right? Or the, the present moment. And that's kind of something that yoga teaches us as well is how to be present in the present moment. Like whether, you know, you're talking to your significant other or when you're outside, like you were talking about, like looking at the trees, you're going for a walk, you're feeling the sun in your face. And you just try your best to just be in that present moment and, and not, you know, don't keep your brain in front of the computer monitor when you're walking to Starbucks or something, right? Like, yeah. enjoy the day, you know, kind of have some wonder with the world around you because we do live in an amazing world, right? So, Yeah, I had it explained to me once that the mind does control the body. And the fight or flight response, which you mentioned before, is a very good example of that because your mind can get to such an elevated state that you can actually get your body into that fight or flight physically response. Your heart rate can increase, the tension in your muscles and your back can increase, different chemicals in your brain can change quite drastically in very short periods of time, right? And you can be in that from writing code. You can be in that sustained fight or flight response for several hours struggling with a very severe complex, you can then walk away with sweat down your back even though you weren't really moving. This is why uh, sweaty gamers are referred to as sweaty gamers. You know, like if you're, if you're playing a competitive first person shooter like I do as well, you can actually spend two hours of gaming and come away from it literally covered in sweat from being in that such intense environment. And, and calming down from that is a real challenge. So the last year, uh, the game I play is called Planet Side 2. And last year we had a, a big outfit wars. And one of the biggest complaints that all the participants had, especially the, order, the leaders of all the outfits had, was it was just so draining on the teams to have to fight every day in a row. And these matches were an hour and a half long. And we don't think about video games as being physically punishing. Uh, we think of them as fun. This is a fun thing to do. But we are there. And we are in an altered state mentally as well as physically because of that. And so are we when we're struggling with writing a line of code and throughout our workday in puzzles. I also was big into rock climbing when I was younger. That was another thing that had to go away. I just, I didn't have time for it anymore. I climbed competitively for a little while. Um, I was doing 513s constantly, all the time. Wow. Um, I was still, I still couldn't get inverted very well. I was having some issues with that. But I was six foot tall and 170 and just lean. And it was the best shape I've ever been in my life. But I ha 
on, on a little side detour <laughs> climbing competitions are the best competitions in the whole world that spirit of camaraderie between top competitors is just an incredible thing to witness anyways side note done um <laughs> the physical capacity as you were saying, does have some outlets that we can choose to through mindfulness and yoga and physical activity outside of our desks. One of my favorite ones is just watering the garden. Just getting out there and just watering the garden. And it turned out to be a really good hobby. At the end of the day, for about 20 minutes, I can just go around and water the garden. And we're in that point now here in July where stuff is starting to fruit. The flowers are turning into peppers and tomatoes and we've got apples growing on the apple tree. Some raspberries are starting to come in. Different flowers are starting to bloom at different times of the year. That's my nice break at the end of the day. I don't really have a break at the in the morning though. So maybe I should work that into my day. Get out for a short walk. Yeah, I, I was really good at it at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, it was like, I have to keep this up. And then I fell off the bus with it a little bit too, but it's I, I still do it occasionally. And I'd, I'd like to do it more, to be honest. But like, yeah, it's, it's a great way to start your day, right? And just kind of get yourself centered and, you know. Yeah, but uh, once or twice a year, we'll foster a dog, which is which gets me out every morning and every afternoon and every evening, which is just really... <laughs> which is a really healthy thing for me. Uh, yeah, so, uh, but we can't do it all the time. And especially over the summertime when we take all of our vacation time, having a dog at home, it just doesn't work out that well. But, you know, in the fall and in the spring, it's uh, a good time. Wow. That's you don't want it. You don't want to train a puppy to go out to the bathroom when it's minus 30 outside. <laughs> to just that's so well. But yeah, yeah, once or twice a year, we'll foster. Well, this was really great. We'll take a break here for a little bit. And then when we come back, we'll get nerdy and technical and we'll talk about the .NET side of things. Right on. Okay, cool. Okay, so during the break, Mike, you said something very, very fascinating and interesting to me. You said you knew a guy. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about the guy. I used to work with this guy who was a, he was a PHP developer but he decided that he had had enough of coding and the lifestyle that he was living. He was overweight. He was unhappy. He was miserable. So he decided that he was going to lose weight by eating only raw foods. All the fruits and vegetables that he wanted, he could eat. But only fruits and vegetables. As Sean shows us, his giant salad bowl full of... Massive bowl of fruit salad. Nice. Beautiful. And that worked. I, uh, over the course of a year, I watched him lose a whole bunch of weight and yeah that was that was really inspiring and then he snapped one day and he was like you know what i'm done i don't want to write code anymore i want to travel all around the world with my motorcycle that had a little trailer on the back so that he could carry all of his equipment and and go and do uh latex body painting competitions everywhere yeah and he did and so far as i know he's still doing that i don't know wow um, that was that's good ten years ago. Easy ten years ago, yeah. More than ten years ago. Shoot, I'm so old I have to do math to figure out when something happens. But yeah, it was a long time ago. Uh, it was kind of an inspiration for me. I was like, God, you know, someday I hope I'm that guy. I hope someday I just decide that I've had enough and, <laughs> and just go do something crazy. Yeah, I'd be down for that. To all those developers out there 
Thinking about starting a career in web design or web development? Consider getting into latex face painting. Oh, he did full body, nude women. He was all the way. Go all the way, front end, back end. You can specialize in whatever you want. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, his his work got featured. It was world-class stuff. He was really good. He was really in demand, yeah. Well, that transitions very well on the back end side to some of the questions that we had for you, Philip, because you primarily work in .NET on the back end. But the biggest Mm -hmm. question I think our listeners are wondering today is, is .NET still a thing? Yeah. Oh, I'd say... That is a great question. I would really like to know. You know, 80% of the internet runs on Linux and has for decades, I think. And the prevalence of open source tool stacks being what they are. And I don't know what the price to entry is for .NET anymore. I haven't worked with it in 10 years. But I know that one of the reasons that I got started with Linux and open source tools is because it had a very $0 entrance fee. And at the time, this is 20, 25 years ago, trying to do anything in Microsoft in the late 90s was incredibly cost prohibitive. I was living as cheaply as I possibly could trying to save money and and travel. It just was not an option for me. So I've often wondered if the historical roots of that barrier to entry is still there and if that has hurt the adoption of Microsoft Stack more so today. Yeah, that's a great question. And I've been in a pretty unique position to see some of it evolve, you know, as I've worked. Because when I originally started, and this is kind of how me and Sean started talking, is I told them about doing ASP.NET and doing something called ASP.NET Web Forms, which is kind of a, your, your full solution of back-end, front-end web framework. And, you know, I was using something called Bootstrap, you know, that I was mm-hmm. telling Sean about. We were kind of smiling, <laughs> saying that kind of shows my age in that in that uh, <laughs> technology. But, it worked. you know, at the time, it worked great. But I was also using what was called .NET Framework, right, which went up to, I think now it's at 4.8. And then what happened is Microsoft created something called .NET Core, which, and one of the big things about it is it is cross-platform, right? The old .NET Framework only ran on Windows, and um, it still does, right? But these newer versions run on Linux, they run on Mac, right? You know, you can use VS Code like we were talking about earlier. You don't, I think the old .NET Framework, you actually need the full Visual Studio IDE, which has got licensing and everything attached to it. And actually, .NET is open source now. You know, it's evolved quite a bit. And often when I'm working, I can, um, and a lot of it's on GitHub, right? So I can, if I'm running into trouble with an SDK or something, I can literally go and just go right into their source code. Or it's actually quite nice. But they put all of their packages on there, right? So now I can, you can just go in there and have a discussion with the teams. Like you can start raising an issue about something or look through raised issues. So that's been really nice. As for cost of entry, there is some kind of free tier now. Like they have something called Visual Studio Community, where up to a certain point of your project, I believe you don't have to pay. Like it, there's no licensing associated with it. But once you're past a certain point, you have to pay for a license for your IDE that you're using to build the code with. And with some of the Azure services, you can post things for free at certain tiers. And it's some of the tiers are actually pretty good. Like I know sometimes when these cloud services say free, you're on like a you know shared infrastructure with someone that might be using their uh, their thing to scrape the web at a very high velocity or something. And you, you have that noisy neighbor problem, right? But a lot of these, like, you know, you can use, you know, and I, I talk about Azure because I, I use it quite a bit, but um, you can get a NoSQL database on there called Cosmos DB, which is their flavor of NoSQL. But 
up to a certain tier, it's free, right? So you can just try it out. And I mean, you're probably not running like an enterprise application on it, but like, it's pretty good, I guess, in short, like even the Azure function model is, um, you got a certain number of free executions per month with it. You do have to pay for the storage and some other parts of the infrastructure, but it's, um, I don't think the costs are too bad. So, yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, one New Year's Eve in 1998, uh, trying to install Linux so that I could host my own web server. <laughs> and I got that up and running, and then I was installing PHP, and then MySQL, and then I built my first web app. And then I was so impressed with Linux, I was making the shift from doing design work as well to doing programming work. And so I was using Photoshop all the time. And back then you would buy it once and it, that was it, right? So you would spend the three, $400 or whatever, and then you get a copy of it. And I was borrowing a license from somebody else. And as long as I wasn't logged in at the same time as them, I think it worked okay. But then I shifted to Linux completely full-time on my desktop as well as on all the server work that I was doing. And I had to give up Photoshop and had to learn GIMP. Oh, God, that was painful. I still have nightmares about learning <laughs> GIMP back then. But one of the things that I've always wondered about .NET, it seemed to me at the time when I last used it about 10 years ago that if you wanted to get a package to help do a thing, mm -hmm. uh, a, a different module or whatever, there was a cost associated to it. Whereas with, with JavaScript, you type, you know, npm install, whatever and then you're off to the races. I think as far as front-end development goes, 95% of everything that you could ever want to use is probably free with some exceptions. You know, charting, for example, if you want to do some serious advanced charting, you generally have to pay for an application to plug into the front-end. eCharts, I think, has really challenged that notion a lot lately. But then there was also all of the back-end code in JavaScript world and Node world and in Python, 99% of that comes free. But with ASP and .NET, it always seemed like if you want to do anything outside of the core, you'd have to pay somebody something somewhere. I was wondering if, if that's still a thing. For, there are some packages that will have a license fee, but um, there's there's what they call the NuGet package manager, which is essentially npm for for C# -sharp and all the like the .NET languages. But a lot of a lot of the stuff I've seen is free as well. Like you just have to go to the website and you know like the the repository and just make sure the license is is fine. But yeah, I've used a lot of free stuff on there. You know, like libraries for doing X or B or things like that. So a lot of MIT licensing kind of stuff out there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's good to know. It's It's been a while since I've worked in that world. So I thought I would just revisit some of the thoughts that I had at the time and, and see if if they've changed or grown. And it sounds like things have progressed in a, in a more open kind of way, which is kind of cool. One thing that I wonder is how does Microsoft maintain the security of their packages that other people contribute, right? Because NPM is known for security issues, right? Downloading some module could have a color library that has vulnerabilities in it. What does Microsoft do to prevent those sorts of security and vulnerability issues um, getting into other code bases with NuGet specifically? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. I'm, I'm not sure the exact answer, but I, I know I've been on the receiving end of where they have, they'll, they'll have warnings where they'll give you, you know, 
vulnerability oh. warning and then you can click on it and it'll show you like you know it'll, it'll show up in your in your build as well like npm does you know it'll oh. give you that little warning or the so there are, there are they do have measures in place like that okay um, yeah yeah it, it does seem like it, it, it's a much smaller community uh looking from the outside inwards as a front-end javascript developer what kind of assurance could you give somebody who might want to try it, maybe a full stack developer who's considering, you know, .NET for their next project? What kind of, um, what, what would attract you to start or them to start a, a full stack application using .NET as opposed to something like Next or Nuxt or I guess SvelteKit, like given that they've basically become full stack frameworks and including the backend side as well? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, and, and you know, coming from my, uh, I've, I've really shifted towards the back end the last yeah. five yeah, years yeah, or so. Enough. But um, yeah, yeah, I can, I can definitely try to give you my point of view on it. Um, because yeah, and I've I've got an opportunity to use some of those frameworks you're talking about, which which are great, right? Like they're lightweight, they're fast, um, they're you know, you said they're popular. Um, I, I do the, a lot of the, um, like the way that their API works, like their REST API system, like some of the syntax and some of the things they take care for of for you, I, I really like. Like, um, you know, I'm trying to think of some examples, like just, you know, like you can, when you do, like the routing system they have is really nice. You can specify right in the route, like whether something is a good, for example, and um, it, it almost protects the endpoint from being called if someone's not calling it with a proper good. Like, I think it just throws a request uh, failed or something automatically, like a bad request. Like, sorry, are you familiar with good? I know it's kind of a Microsoftish term. I actually <laughs> from, don't know if you mean like a GUID. Like, um, yes, yeah, is, is that how you say it? Good <laughs> for all our listeners now. Now maybe they've learned something new as well. Good, but I think I think that's something that we can maybe relate to um, having adopted other Microsoft technologies like TypeScript in our projects because TypeScript does a lot of that kind of enforcement, or you, it can if you use interfaces and you specify the types that you expect to have passed in to your functions, right? Whether you use gRPC or REST or whatever, it just always has to match that signature or else you get a method not allowed, 500, whatever it is, um, mm -hmm. right? Is, is that the idea? So just have like annotations instead of using like TypeScript in, in the backend code? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and, and returning status codes is, is fairly straightforward. Like, it's just like this, you know, your controllers, it's just a very, not, not a lot of code that you have to write. Like, it's just something that's, it's just really well built in that I like, like returning a 200 super easy, you know, it's just like return. Okay. Right. Okay. With the, the function thing on the outside, I, I think even the newer version is like that, but you know, there's that part. And I mean, I could speak to a little more of my experience because I, I, I do a fair amount of authentication work as well, but I, I really like their authentication libraries, like for JWTs. Um, okay. You know, it's just really nice. Um, things that are very hard to do, they help you get it set up really nicely and, um, you know, goes right into the, the framework of what you're using and refreshes the token and things like that with their service and enforces caching. And you can control these things, but some of the out-of-the-box stuff is really nice for that, right? So, hmm. You've mentioned controllers and controlling. In, yeah. And I'm wondering, would you, say that, would you say that the architecture of ASP follows the classic model view controller sort of 
architecture and would you consider that an asset or a liability in today's age where everything seems to be a function like in the next world in the remix world where in you know front-end development everything should be a function according to the facebook developers or meta developers um that that have functions for everything because they don't like classes do you think that that has any appeal today in 2023 to back-end developers Ah, interesting question. You know, and, and I, I've heard about this move to, um, they're called function components, I believe, right? Yeah, or, like, or, yeah. Um, yeah, functional function components. <laughs> Everything happens to be a function and even reducers, right? They're just giant functions that have case switch or not even, they just have if and then all the methods in quotation marks to figure out what actually it gets called. And then, uh, you know, the back end would figure out, okay, well, we're calling this method <laughs> or the front end, right? Depending on how you set it up. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I mean, for me, like I, I, for me, I really like the the models concept because you know, like when when you're talking to, um, like I'll use NoSQL as an example. So you're talking to a NoSQL database and you're pulling the data into C Sharp, and in, in NoSQL it's a JavaScript database, right? So you're using JavaScript casing, like you know, uh, Pascal or sorry. Uh, camel casing and Pascal casing next. So, but we pull it into the .NET worlds, and .NET is uh, C sharp is Pascal case, right? So, um, .NET gives you a way, and I think this is in other languages as well. But it's like um, you can put annotations in your model on top of the properties of the method or the variables, right? And that way, when you serialize it to put it into the database, it puts it into camel case. But when you bring it into the C sharp world in your class, it actually is in proper, you know, casing. And the ID doesn't get mad at you or anything, and you know it's proper. It's the the way to do it. Like you know, um, so th for models, like when you're, especially when you're talking to other backend services, like models for me are everything, right? Like you can choose which items you want from what you get back, and which ones you don't if you want, or, or only give back a certain number of properties to keep your calls over the wire nice and like small, right? Like maybe you don't need to give all 50 properties back. Just pick the three out of the response and then build your model and return it, right? Curious if you have anything to say about that, Mike, because like you used to work with .NET, and I'm wondering if that has changed a lot since you touched it last. Man, that is a problem that did not exist for me at all. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't have to deal with that. Even back in my C++ days, <clears throat> I used to write doors for BBS dial-up systems even before I got into web, and we were using C++ for most of that. Most of the BBS stuff was done with C++ on OS2, actually, not even on Windows, but um, man, that's going back a long ways. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, most of that stuff didn't exist. We didn't have that problem back then, no. Th things have gotten, like, throughout the history of software development, it seems like things just get more and more complicated. And as things get more complicated, things and skill sets get more specialized. And then, you know, well-meaning developers come along and they say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we just stuck to this one convention? Right? Tabs versus spaces. Should we argue about soft tabs? Like, these are arguments that have persisted for a very long time. And somewhere along the way, people decided, you know what, we're done. This is how it's going to be. And now we have linters, right, to enforce those. I'm assuming there is a linter for .NET stuff as well on the server side. We have it in JavaScript world. And there's many, 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 many different standards and configurations that you can apply to the way you do things. So I haven't had that problem. The closest thing that I can say is uh, we flip it around a little bit in our world. So, you know, the front end framework that we do came with CSS as a package and they did all their CSS with kebab case. 
all small letters, dashes between each word. And uh, in order to determine, you know, what's internal to the framework and what's external to us, we switched. And so when we write our own CSS, we do all snake case. So it looks similar, but you can immediately tell if something was written by one of us or whether it came from our package. And so we can tell if something's overriding something that it shouldn't be immediately. So it's incredibly helpful for us to use different types of cases. Different scenario, of course, but sometimes it, it can be a real strength too. I guess that would be my one comment there. Yeah, I know that I also experienced the same thing working with an older framework called Ember.js. My last job where we would have the concept of MVC, right? So you have models that can then get translated into API calls if you want to re retrieve them. And you can find different, what they call in the Ember world, adapters, which then you can change the request and then serializers, for example, if you set your model up with snake case or camel case and all the attributes that way, you can have like a this thing called a key for attribute and then it, it just like changes. You can change it to kebab case, camel case, whatever you want. So you can define the model the way that you want to write it and then just write a, a function that transforms the attributes of what you send out to the server. So... And you can do it on a case-by-case -case basis, like maybe just for one endpoint, you can change it up, right? Does .NET have the similar capability, or is it just universal, either kebab case, camel case, you have to choose one? Uh, sorry, is this for talking to, to endpoints? I, uh... No, to retrieve, like, so when, when you retrieve oh. that data, does it have to always follow a certain like does it have to match the model or can you do like a case-by-case -case basis so that one model oh. might have kebab case one might have camel case because different clients might interact with them with different payloads yeah yeah absolutely yeah great question yeah so you can customize the serialization setting of the library you're using and actually on the topic of libraries there was one that basically ruled the world called newtonsoft it was like the the facto json library for .NET for years and years and years and actually the person that wrote it James Newton King now works at Microsoft and now Microsoft has made their own JSON built-in library, which I actually quite like, but the prevalence of this library is all over, even on the Microsoft built SDKs, it's still there and they're, they're slowly getting rid of it. But basically to go back to your original question, yeah, like, you know, you get your string of JSON, you can deserialize it, you can pass in whatever your serialization options might be. So like, like you said, if, like I've seen JSON that's not in camel case as well, right? It can be in Pascal case or, or what have you, or uh, I'm trying to think what it is called. They had, it was called, an XML was called XPath, but there's like a JSON version of that too, where you can kind of traverse the tree of it. If you're JSON, if it's maybe imperfect or just really pick out what you need out of the data and then just basically throw away the rest or just traverse down that. Because JSON kind of has a tree structure, you know, um, that you can traverse. It's not as, not as uh, structured as XML, which is kind of good and bad at the same time, but yeah. Yeah, it sounds like there's everything you need with .NET. Like you can get, all the things that you'd expect from a backend framework. Um, I'm sure our listeners are wondering now with that kind of out of the way, what about performance? How does .NET compare to say Rails, which is known to be slow? Is it a concern? How does it scale compared to maybe Go or Rust? Why would a backend developer still reach for .NET today rather than going with a quote unquote more performant backend stack like one of these newer languages? 
Yeah, for what I've seen, I've been to a few conferences and I do keep up to date in the .NET community and like whether it's people from Microsoft product teams, you know, technical teams you know, that are presenting or what have you, but they've really improved the performance in like the last even five years. Like they've really been on top of some of the previous problems they were having and just making things smaller, making DLLs that are built smaller and more performant or more things are optional. So like I mentioned, I work with Azure, which is like the, the Microsoft cloud platform interestingly even though I'm a back-end developer I'm interacting with other back-end services with JSON so like I was talking to our mobile developer the other day it's like sometimes I feel like a front-end dev because I'm working with their back-end right but where I was going with all this is a lot of the time the default in these libraries I've noticed is they give you the minimum amount of data back possible and it benefits both sides right it's like okay like for them they don't have to pass all this data over the wire and for you as the developer you can choose whether if I, I want the extra attributes like you know if it's a file system I want the last modified data or something but if I don't ask for that by default then it doesn't return it and by that virtue, it, from what I've seen, it's been very performant. If, I would recommend people go look at the graphs as well or like look at what people use to measure you know, the tools and things like that. But I think it's really competitive from what I've seen. Like that conference I was at, they were showing the metrics of the latest.NET and like they were showing the performance when they went to, um, they moved one of their, actually their, their NoSQL database, Cosmos DB, they moved it to .NET 6. And they showed the CPU usage of the server once they deployed it. And you could just see it just go down on the chart, right? Like it was a noticeable improvement. So I would say like if you're on the later versions of .NET, like .NET 6, they have .NET 7, and then .NET 8 is coming in the fall. But like it's, it's definitely performant now. I, I would say competitive. You mentioned the graph. Is that like the same thing that we think about in front end, like GraphQL? Is that a similar idea? Ah, good question. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, sometimes I say these things without uh, <laughs> thinking them through. But uh, yeah, oh, the graphs, the graph is the, the Microsoft graph API is what I use sometimes in my work. So it's basically this massive API behind Microsoft 365. You know, like Microsoft Teams uses it and Outlook. All these services are using this graph API, which it does have a graph database under the hood, you know, and I think Facebook has something similar to this as well. But anyway, the cool thing is as a um, developer, you can wire into these services, right? So if you have the right consents from the system administrator of the organization, you can build an application that wires into Office. You can have an application that you can talk to someone through Teams with, things like that, right? Sounds like uh, Microsoft kind of gives you everything that you could possibly need, including the Cosmo DB, the NoSQL database. Uh, they give you access to everything. And at what cost, right? So a lot of our listeners have, and Mike, you've come on the show expressing some concern about this as well as myself, but there's the whole stigma against Microsoft, the embrace, extend, extinguish, and the vendor lock-in. What would you say you've experienced when it comes to the vendor lock-in? Like, could you take your configurations in .NET or Cosmo DB and migrate to something like GraphQL and uh, MongoDB? Is that something that you could do if you wanted to? Or are you pretty much just locked in as soon as you choose to use these technologies? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. That conference I mentioned I went to, I got to see a presentation on this technology called Dapper, which I don't know if you guys have heard of, but it's like a microservice framework that originated out of Microsoft and they actually open source it. And similar to Kubernetes, they release it to the same type of organization for the web that the Kubernetes was born in Google and the same thing, they kind of release it out to the open source world, right? But one thing that I, I talked to one of the presenters and he was telling me about this concept called polyglot which means you're language agnostic, right? Like um, he actually asked me, like, are, are you guys polyglot? I'm like, that's an interesting term to ask someone, right? But so anyway, what I've noticed with this type of thinking with these microservices, they were talking about how they just have like a, it's kind of like a generic plugin. And I hope I'm doing this technology justice because I've only heard about it. I've never used it for real. But, um, you know, you have like your, your cache service, right? And if the cache service is running locally on your machine, it's going to use the, the local storage in your browser, I believe it uses or something. But if it's running in the cloud, you can tell it, okay, you're running in Azure, you're going to use Redis cache. But if you're in AWS, you can have like these configurations that are cloud agnostic, right? That are like you can just drag and drop them like you said, you're, you're building services that are not tied to implementations like this, right? So that's kind of where I, I think some of the future of this is going. And I think Microsoft is on board for this with what I've seen. Some of the older stuff, like I mentioned, like .NET Framework was definitely tied to having like a Windows server configuration, right? Or like an, an IIS server or something like absolutely, right? Or like, and again, like Visual Studio, like some of my previous colleagues that were on Mac, like they would have to open Parallels to run Visual Studio because you have to run .NET Framework. And then, but now you can just open natively in, in Mac, right? So as far as some of the implementations, it, it really depends. Like a lot of these libraries I mentioned, they do make them for different languages. Like there's a Java version, JavaScript version, you know, things like that, like for Azure Functions, for example. So the code itself, you'd have to rewrite, like you wouldn't be able to take that across. But I think in terms of that, depending on the stack you choose, I don't think you're as vendor locked in as the old days. I think in the, what I'm seeing now is, yeah, like in, you can also run your .NET application on Linux. That's no problem. In some cases, I've seen it recommended. Like when I was doing this container app project, it runs on Linux, right? It's just faster in this case. It's going to be cheaper, right? I'm not sure the exact prices of everything, but, you know, they have their benefits, right? So... It's an interesting way of like, because you've like, when you mentioned the old world, like I know we were talking at Pixels about the old embrace, extend and extinguish thing, right? And I think when I first started on my career, I, I saw some of the remnants of that, like some of the more closed environment idea. And, and some of it, to be honest, like when I was working with it, some of it worked quite well when you're in, when you're in like a Windows, like when you're in an organization, like I'll, I'll give you an example, like I was at an organization and I built like an internal web app and the authentication I used because I was on .NET, I could use Active Directory to authenticate people, and we'd have the people in an Active Directory group, and that was how that person had access to X screen. And it was like very little code to use. It was integrated. It worked. So there was things like that where it was like, okay, this works very well, right? But like, again, it's like getting off that type of application, or can I bring in a different kind of model that interacts with it? Like maybe now you can, but can you write like an application that interacts with on-premise? Actually, you can. I mean, you can do almost anything in software. But you know what I mean? Like doing something at that level may not be as easy with the old Microsoft, but I feel like with that graph API I mentioned and stuff, like, you know, it, it's a REST API, right? Like you can have anything that points at it, really, that has authentication. And was that kind of your question or did I go off on a little bit of a rant there? <laughs> Well, yeah, one of the things about portability is and vendor lock-in is that you have to make a decision at some point to get locked into something. We're highly portable in a lot of different ways in the sense that I can spin up VPS anywhere on any provider and we can run. 
So we're not hooked on Amazon. We're not hooked on Azure, although we do have some Azure assets. But for the most part, any Linux system will work. We could even go old school and host on-prem with an actual physical machine. We could do that if we, if we wanted to. And we're actually considering doing that for our testing environment because you know, the size of our database has gotten so big so fast that having a second environment spun up to the full size, full state constantly, it's a bit of a challenge and it's an expense. I mean, $800 a month isn't much of an expense these days, but you know, there's somebody out there who's paying $5 a month for their VPS on DigitalOcean, right? Or $4 a month now. And they're probably thinking, that's 200 times more than what I pay. How big is that damn thing, right? Well, yeah, we've got a 800 gigabyte database. So give you some example, migrating 800 gigabytes is an incredible challenge. I mean, even though we are portable, we're a little bit stuck. Transferring 800 gigabytes over the wire would take a good considerable amount of time, and that's going to have an impact on our users. I don't know if they want us to go down for a day, right? We could set up replication and try to do it manually, but we would be taking in more data and then replicating more data. It would probably take us about two and a half weeks, I think, at this point to replicate it over. Plus, there's performance impacts and stuff. Some of the packages that we've used are no longer supported. You know, we started building this five years ago. Upgrading some of our packages or replacing them where that's not possible has been a real challenge. In fact, we've got one guy full-time whose job it is to just help with that alone. Just upgrade migration paths constantly. And a lot of that is all open source. When Google decides that they're no longer going to support their open source stuff, it really comes down to how big is the community? Do we have any maintainers? And a lot of the reason why companies shut down their open source stuff is because they don't have that large community. They don't have those maintainers. It didn't pick up steam or traction. And so you get a vendor locking can come in a different variety and in different ways. So it's really nice to know that some of our abstractions like SQLize, which we use on, to manage our database connections, has been maintained and continues to be maintained and upgradability was a big concern and they did a really good job on that. But that said, we could swap it to something else in SQLize because it's all abstracted and we did that right from the beginning because we weren't sure which way it was going to go. So consequently, a lot of our guys have to write a lot of raw SQL queries on the back end, which is something that people really don't do a lot of anymore. But we love our SQL and we love writing complex queries. You know, a 25, 30 line SQL query isn't uncommon in our world just because of it. There's just so many related points of data and it just continues to grow and grow. But, you know, fortunately we have machine learning coming on board now, so maybe we don't have to do it with queries anymore. So that'll be good. I don't know, is there a, are there plugins for .NET machine learning stuff and things? Yeah, what about all this whole ChatGPT Microsoft thing? They must have, I mean, outside of IntelliSense or whatever they're, what, what is what is it, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, so the um, they have GitHub Copilot Right, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I haven't had the opportunity to use it yet. Um, I, I really have been meaning to. I just like I said, got got back from Bali and all this other fun stuff. But it, from what I saw, it's it's really neat. Like, and it just goes into um, they're just plugins you can put into any IDE. So, well, the, the I don't know what the I, I again, I'm Microsoft stack thinking here, but they have like the the data ones called Azure Data Studio. You can have that have plug into there or VS Code or um, Visual Studio, but. To talk to your SQL point, one thing that I saw was really cool and a bit crazy was the person like 
they put in the they make like they start writing comments for what they want to do in, in just a blank file like you know your SQL file and this thing will pick up on it and just write a SQL query for you right or um, something that I found extremely impressive being Mr. Backend that I am or you know like I go into the front end every now and again but um, the person took a model file that I talked about earlier from C sharp and they put it into the comments of the SQL file or was it the other way around no no sorry they, they took a SQL table like a create table statement and put it into the comments of a Visual Studio uh, C-sharp class that was empty. And this thing built a model out of it, like a model class, which is, you know, if anyone's done this, it's like you got to just type the properties out or you try to have all these strategies to not type, you know. <laughs> but it's, it's a pain to do. And it's, it's, it takes a lot of your mind and it's not very, um, what's the, they use this term of, you know, it's, like basically they're saying AI frees up your mind to do the more important things. And that's a, one of those tasks that we don't like to do as developers. It's got to get done right somehow. So I thought that was really cool. So that that's integrated. Um, what I was reading from what I was reading early on, it was having fights with IntelliSense. So like sometimes the cope, the copilot would do something and IntelliSense would do something else. But I think they've got most of those kinks out now um, from what I was reading. Like I said, I kind of follow the blogs and people on the community and stuff, but um yeah, so that that that's interesting. You know, I I am curious to see where this goes. Like I I was watching um there was another uh I was just watching like a, a video clip on uh, someone from the Visual Studio team, I believe, or from the .NET team, but they were showing where they want to go with this and like hooking it into the debugger so it has like the variable state and like you know you're you're pausing the debugger and this thing will make suggestions on what it thinks is wrong or hey maybe oh. this could be written a different way and like it's it's wild what's coming like it's like like if you can imagine you know like this this thing's at the next level like sitting there literally at co-pilot like you know being next to you i think that's why they use that marketing term but like you know pair programming with you essentially right like so uh, as yeah, you uh, debug your code the ai system itself suggests changes that might contribute to a problem or a bug that you experience is that the idea yeah yeah like i believe like it's like it can actually see the variable state as you're stopped on a debug point and i think you can either ask it a question or, or it might actually make suggestions from what i was saying like, i think it was quite new and they were showing it um it was if anyone's listening it was i think it was scott hanselman who's like a pretty yeah, prominent yeah. net community guy right yeah he, he was showing it at one of their conferences recently and that's where i saw this on the video and i'm like this is crazy right like it's like this thing is like <laughs> it's literally tied in it's in your ide right listening to um yeah the variables and and like i think he literally asked it he's like there's a there's a bug i know it's somewhere in this method or function oh. like can you help me and like it, it you know reads through and makes suggestions and um I, I don't know if it actually highlights the line but i'm like you can think of the possibilities of this thing right but um of course you need to also interpret it right and make sure that it's correct but <laughs> as we know with what we've seen with ai so far but Okay, so we're kind of talking future time zones here. I'm wondering, um, what does the near future look like for uh, the .NET world? What, are, is there anything in there that you're excited is coming down the pipe? Yeah, uh, let me think on that one. The, the first one that I mentioned, that that Dapper framework, that like microservice framework, that that seems very exciting for me. That that whole concept, it's it's just such a different way of thinking. Like I said, I, I understand what microservices are in concept, but I've never worked with them. But like just these independently deployable services that can scale independently, and you're kind of keeping this compartmentalization of things into one service. It just seems like a really and that whole polyglot thing I mentioned, where you're just not really tied to the implementation of a service. 
it just seems like a really neat way of thinking, like very different. And then, you know, you're running these on all like, like Kubernetes or some kind of container orchestration platform. And that seems really cool. And I, I think the .NET ecosystem is headed that way. Um, that combined with like some of the newer language features, like they have .NET 8 coming out where I haven't got a chance to work with some of their newer web API features. Like we talked about MVC earlier and stuff. It seems really cool. Like they're coming out with this thing called minimal APIs where it's just like really small amounts of code. Like it's almost like, like as a traditional .NET person, you're like, oh, where's all the controller code? Like where's all the stuff that I'm used to? It's just like this little tiny method that like it's something .map get and it's just like this little tiny thing that it almost oh. looks like maybe React or something. And, oh, is it like um, serverless? Like what you consider serverless, like a function that then can get deployed to the cloud and then have like a cold start sort of situation on Azure or Google Lambda. This would be, I wonder if you could technically do that. Uh, so yeah, like Lambda or, or functions, like that would be like an HTTP function, right? Where you can yeah. just deploy that one and, you know, just returns your results and like just like an isolated bit of code as a function. Yeah. Um, this one, I think it's just like a way of like writing basically essentially less code. Like if you don't need, like what I've seen it used for is in that example I gave with Dapper is the person was using minimal APIs in his microservices, right? Cause he didn't need a full fledged, like enterprise level thing that was like, you know, managing tons of requests and doing all this authentication. Like, you know, it was using like GPRC or something. So you don't need all of this huge application you just need something small that just does simple communication and i think that's where it's more used for it was just like like minimal api right like just keeping it simple as far as i understand from it it sounds to me like that shift that we're seeing in, in the front end web development community where everything becomes a function and less classes created less boilerplate i mean even seeing this in looking back into angular 16 which is coming out soon and, and they're reducing the uh, amount of well, they have this thing called like standalone components where you can, you don't have to worry so much about all the dependency injection part. So uh, that makes it easier to read. You don't have as much boilerplate and reduces the learning curve for cer certain people, right? Um, but let's take a step back and talk about the future in, in conjunction with the learning curve because that is a very important part for people who might consider adopting .NET. Um, what kind of um, consolation or what kind of assurance could you give to a full stack developer considering looking into .NET or considering a job maybe in a company that is .NET but may not have that experience? Um, how, how might they go about learning um, in conjunction with some of the new things coming out uh, like this Dapper and uh, Polyglot that you mentioned? Yeah, uh, for me, what served me really well is they, they have really good learning they have a really good learning platform microsoft like um and i've gotten a number of certifications from them as well which have been really valuable to me um these learning platforms it's like it um it has you know you go you want to learn about a technology and it just takes you through these different steps right and there might be like a lab involved where you actually go into a physical environment they spin up for you which is quite nice right because you're not only reading you're able to apply your knowledge so I, I found that really helps me. And um, their documentation has really improved over the last, gosh, I mean, since I, like I started in like, what, eight years ago, like um, it's even that, that from then to now, I've really noticed it. It's just, you know, here's how this works. Here's an example. Um, you know, that, that's been really good. And, and, and like, as I mentioned, the open source thing has been really helpful, especially once you get more senior in your role and you have to go, you know, okay, how does this actually work? Right? And then actually go into the source and just seeing how it works. And 
um, like I said, like I was able to raise an issue once to one of the SDK teams and I got a response in like, I don't know, it was like 15 minutes later. I mean, not always the case, obviously, but it, it is quite nice having that level of reach with this. So I, I think what I, advice I would give is, I think also you may want to know your environment, right? Like, I, I don't know how many .NET shops are around in your area, um, you know, but they're, they're in this, in the area that this person were, this hypothetical person we're talking about is, right? But like, I know for me, when I started off, um, you know, in Alberta here, we have a fairly large oil and gas industry and uh, .NET was fairly prominent there. So I was able to, you know, use my skills there very well, but um, it's also used it in a lot of other places, but I know there's a lot of other places that don't also use that, right? So. I guess it depends on, on where you want to go and um, maybe the job, the it's hard to say the job you're trying to target, right? But I feel like it's a good skill to have. Like I feel like it's used in a lot of places um, and the concepts you learn in .NET are usable in other languages as well, right? So. Well, well, .NET comes from C++, which comes from C++, which comes from C and, and you know, that, that, that lineage <laughs> is really well understand and, and a lot of other a lot of other languages have really borrowed from from that over the years, and so yeah. When I was uh, going from PHP, JavaScript, and C plus plus into ASP uh, and some .NET stuff, it was really easy to pick up. Um, yeah, the, the, a lot of the conventions are similar, if not the exact same, when it comes to syntax. It, it was, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't that big a deal. I I was more nervous than I should have been. I was I will say. I will say after after about two weeks of working in the environment, I had gotten through all of the biggest hurdles, just figuring out how to work in the environment and use Windows again. That was a, <laughs> that was a big that was a big challenge. But yeah, it wasn't it wasn't all that big a deal. And I say that as a Linux guy, like it, it wasn't it wasn't that big. Um, but I still do some C plus plus work here in in Linux land, and and that carried over. So that was that was good to see. Um, I know that in 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 web development, uh, mobile app development, um, automated testing is a big thing. I was wondering if you have any experience with automated testing and um, what your opinions on that might be. And are there any particular tools that are helpful in the .NET world that you might recommend? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, the answer is I don't have as much experience as as as, it, as I would like. I've definitely done a fair amount of unit testing, right? With like end unit, it's one of the ones I've used. You know, we and talked we have about that. The, yeah, end unit. I remember that too from way back in like. So that's still kicking around. That's still still doing it's well. Still kicking around. Look at that. Yeah, it's it's still kicking around. And then wow. they had they had some kind of um you know some kind of package that was called end unit adapter that you had to install to use with newer versions of .NET. And then then you went to the newer package and they had to get rid of that. And then yeah, it's still around. Yeah, and it still it still works, right? So but yeah yeah, and actually we, we had some fun with that one. That whole story, like the, you know I the the whole .NET Core and now they just call it .NET, but like it was .NET Core and then now they've made it .NET to make it all sound the same. But it's like it was a bit confusing for a little while especially people just starting in the industry like what do you mean there's like another there's two other frameworks before this but like um yeah so it's like okay now that we're on this version we have to you know go back and adjust this like it was just failing in our build pipeline it was like oh that's why i see what's this what's this end unit test adapter thing oh i see what this is for okay yeah so you write tests for the most part with annotations right and you write them next to the methods right is that still the same thing as i recall you like with NUnit, you do a lot of annotations, which takes the form of comments. Like for our listeners, it more or, more or less looks like JS doc, but writing a test in the comment 
before the method. Is that still the case in .NET? Yeah, like the the attributes, right? Like the you know the annotation you put on top of the method or the class. Is is that what you mean? Like it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and that's used. That annotation system's used everywhere in .NET for a lot of other stuff too. Like for that serialization thing I mentioned. But yeah, for sure, used in using the dot the um the unit testing framework as well. Yeah, and it's kind of nice. It keeps things simple. I find like you know. So you have your test next to the class definitions. There's no like separate test file or you also have like a test file that has like the maybe end-to-end -end unit tests or, or acceptance tests rather that go through the user flows of the uh, application. Oh, oh yeah, it's in a separate file. It's they, in a separate okay. project actually. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I, I think um, you can... Yeah, and a separate like a test like a test project, right? That has okay. all of your um, test classes, and then um, in in the IDE you can see on the method it'll tell you like. Um, and I should be honestly, I should probably be better at at using this tool set, but like you can actually have it um, run tests as you're writing code, I believe, and it shows you above the method how many tests have passed and failed, like kind of the um, what's that style? What's that type of programming called? So, you know, where TDD. You write the test first. TDD. Thank yeah. you. Yes, I think it's Red meant to support factor. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that sounds really interesting and um, a, a, a kind of a refreshing take on things where you do more annotations next to your methods to indicate the types of uh, tests that coincide or couple with each individual um, class or method even, right? Cool. Um, well, we, we've pretty much gone through our questions. Uh, this has been refreshing to hear that .NET has so much to offer still in today. I guess one thing on my mind, and I know that we've briefly touched on this before, this is kind of like the last question for me is, you you know that Blazers is coming out at, or has been out for a while. It seems to be the new hot thing from Microsoft, the whole um, one size fits all solution that integrates with other SPA frameworks. Um, what do you know about Blazor and like, is it actually going to take off? Like, has it is does it have everything that developers need? And how might it differ from the traditional approaches of like just using uh, .NET, um, like for example, with Angular that a lot that Microsoft usually likes to push out. Yeah, for sure. So uh, yeah, the, the conference that I mentioned, it was actually a Microsoft conference and a very large one actually in Las Vegas. Um, but I, I went to a um, like a, a couple of courses in just a training in Blazor. So that that's the extent of my knowledge in it. But, you know, we got to code along and follow along with the person that was presenting and showing everything. And he was very technical, which is good. But so what I saw from it was... Um, it's interesting, like at first, like, because I mentioned you when I started off in my field, I was uh, doing ASP.NET web forms, which are like these, they kind of, from what I've seen from React, like you have these components, right? And then you go inside the component and then you've got all the functionality inside. Like it was similar, but there was a lot of abstraction and some people didn't like the level of abstraction because you really, you lost control of some of the things that were in this little black box component you would put. I saw Blazor's a return to that a bit like having like it has components right and then you can go inside the component and write things the interesting thing which your listeners and you may or may not know but it's using c sharp as the language so there's no javascript written in it as all at all which is interesting and a, a little bit off-putting at first and and if i'm being honest a little bit exciting for me because I, I do like javascript but i'm a little rusty at it i'm like ooh, this you mean i can write the language i'm familiar at and have it compile into something that works and you know so that was really neat and um it does Build like a WebAssembly, like a WASM. Yeah. WebAsm. Uh, WASM. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, which seemed really cool. And they were talking about some of the benefits of Wasm, right? Like they used the example of Google Maps and they went to like a Wasm model, like or no, Google Earth it was. And they talked about the performance increase that they experienced with it. So, you know, and um, I, I quite, I liked it. Like it had, you know, like you can, it still has the concept kind of like React where you can, um, you know, you can, you put a special syntax and you're going into the React world then you're going back into the page world, you know, like kind of the code behind idea or I'm, I think you even like Next.js where you can like set like a server function or a client side function and then sort of interchangeably determine which which version of the function gets executed, whether on the server or on the client. Is that the idea? Hmm, yeah, I'm trying to think like it's like, you know, you can I, I think like you're writing maybe it's you're writing HTML and then you're like, you know, when you're in the HTML, you can use a special character and, and go into the the blazer world, you know, and then oh, just yeah. for doing repeaters and things like that. Yeah. Right. That, that's more what I mean, like doing dynamic things, mm-hmm. right? Like, and, and being able to access that, like, you know, basically switching languages, right. But putting syntax to the, the service that's building this, the compiler knows what you're doing, right. Like, um, but yeah, like it seems like a way of like you're you know, you're building components and um you know yeah you're using C sharp to do it and you know like it produces that Wasm file and it seems like it has a lot of promise like there's a lot of great concepts in there about like code reduction and you know um the the multi oh the one really cool thing I liked about it was the um I hope I have this so like you build your um it's kind of like you know React Native where you can you build something and uh it can it comes out as a mobile app right, right. and I, I don't know if the the code is interchangeable between React and React Native but you only have to make a few small changes right. and this thing uses I believe it uses .NET MAUI which is like their UI framework I believe and it produces a mobile app so like you said you showed us within a few different steps like you build your web app and then a few steps away from making a mobile app with the same code base and logic really? which was Really cool, yeah, yeah. So it's like a native mobile app with native controls, and this is what Maui does? Yeah. Does it work for iOS, Android, all the mobile platforms? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, like they had their old framework. It has some kind of funky name, but that was the idea. It was like uh, like the Flutter framework. If you guys have heard of that, like Google yeah. has, where it, you know you write once and it compiles into both. Yeah, I think that's what .NET Maori does now. But they used to have another framework that did the same thing. But I think that's what Maui does, and I believe Blazor plugs into that. And you just have to change a few things within the code, and then it will build your app into three different builds essentially, right? Like your web, your Android, and your iOS, which is a really neat prospect, right? So. It looks like it might run in, yeah, okay, so it just compiles down. Just reading online, it says here, uh, yeah, cross-platform framework for building native mobile desktop apps in C-sharp and XAML. So XAML is still the primary way to build your user interface, right? XAML, XAML. That hasn't changed, right? Yeah, from what I remember, yes, it, it does. Yeah, yeah, like it was still, it was still there, and then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking up to it. It's good just to remind myself. Yeah, and then you know, Razor shows up again, right? And um, I remember you and me were talking a little bit about Razor Pages, right? Which was like right. kind of the the next iteration of web forms was that like ASP.NET Razor, right? Where and I've written some Razor stuff, and then so yeah, like Razor's in there, XAML's in there, but um, yeah. Okay, this is there's a lot of stuff to learn here, and I wanted to <laughs> sort of take a step back for our listeners because there's a lot of interesting technologies to learn. But for somebody who's just starting out. What's the combination of technologies that you would advise them learning, like 
start to finish because they could learn Blazor, they could learn Razor templates, they could learn the .NET, they could learn all of these different aspects. Where do they start? Is it best to just start from the guides on the Microsoft website or are there particular up and coming technologies that would make more sense to learn rather than the old technologies that developers previously used? Yeah, that's another another really good question. For me, like when I was in school, like I we did Java primarily, and then a little bit of .NET, and the the two languages kind of go back and forth. And you know, when I was starting off in my career, having that backend experience, and I, we'd done some web as well, like HTML, JavaScript, uh, some, some jQuery, like I had told you about, right? And th- that did come in handy for me when I started off as, as a full stack, right? Like being able to understand both sides, being able to write both sides especially when you work with web applications, right? And and when, when you're starting off, you know, you're probably not going to be interacting with these very large backend APIs, depending on your level, right? So in terms of technologies to start with, I think that .NET would be a good choice to start with. And they have those great tutorials I mentioned where you can go to Microsoft Learn and learn about them. I think it would be smart, and, and, and you, you being more of a front-end person, to get up to snuff with JavaScript, right? You know, it's just used in so many places, and, and maybe even vanilla JavaScript. From what I understand, it's becoming more the de facto way of doing things, and then learning the frameworks as well, like finding out what's out there. And it's difficult, because once you learn a framework, you're kind of tied to that way of thinking a little bit, right? But I think if you're starting off on that bottom level first, being just understanding how languages, how they work, the benefits of the strongly typed versus the loosely typed language and the downfalls as well, right? Like if you've learned in one, what's going to heavily punish you in the other or vice versa, right? So I think that would really help you as well. I think it depends on your learning style too. You know, are you more of a watching videos type of person on YouTube or one of these other websites? Or do you like to do things? Can you find a good tutorial that you can follow along with? And I personally believe like doing labs and stuff really helps it stick, right? Like, because you can read about things, but, you know, actually doing it really helps reinforce your mind and making it work. And the last thing I would say is try to find some mentors, especially if you're just starting off when you're in companies like someone's senior, you know, if you're doing an internship, reach out to the senior people on the team, or hopefully one's been assigned to you if you're lucky, right? But just see what's worked for them. Or, hey, can you take a look at what I'm doing here? Like, you know, because if you don't know, you don't know, right? That's great. That really is what, what our listeners are looking for is that little motivation and encouragement that it's actually possible to start up and learn something new like .NET. And actually, I think it's great for anybody to learn a new technology, even even if we haven't looked at it in 10 or so years, to look back and see what you can do with different approaches to the same problems. That was great. Mike, do we have any last questions? I think that's all I had for Philip. No, I'm, I'm all good on my end. Philip, do you have any questions for us? Yeah, it's that time of the show <laughs> where you can ask us questions. You know what? So I, I keep I keep alluding to to me being Mr. Backend, you know. Um, but I, I, you know, both especially like you, Sean. And I, I know that you, Mike, work with some as well. But where do you guys see front end going? And and if I were to hop back into front end, like I, I have some React experience, and my I'm fairly strong in JavaScript, but it's out of date. I know. So like, if I were to hop back in, what where do you think I should go? You know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if you're going to jump back in and you were looking to do it as a career, right now the gorilla is React. It's, it's going to continue that way. But something always dethrones something. I mean, people are still using jQuery to build websites to this day, even. But not everybody likes React. Angular, for example, is another competitor. Vue.js, that's a, another one. That's my personal favorite. I like Vue because it's really easy, really easy for developers to adopt and to try and understand some of these concepts of observability and reactivity on the front end. 
And then of course it's immediately relatable if you move to React. I went the other way, I started with Angular. I went from jQuery to Angular, God, that was a punishment. <laughs> I was, whew, call me a masochist, but that was tough. And then going from Angular to React was pretty tough. I don't think I really understood the core fundamentals from Angular really well when I started working with React. And then I had the opportunity to start my own business. And I was looking at what tool stacks that I want to use. And so I decided that we were going to use Node on the back end and we were going to use Vue.js on the front end. And this is just as Vue 2 was in beta. So right now, I would say if you're looking at getting into front end, learn Vue 3 and just do a small project. That'll help you really understand what observability and reactive components are. The thing that really blew my mind was when I realized that a button wasn't an HTML element anymore, but it was actually a function. <laughs> that really blew my mind. And then I would take some of that experience and having learned Vue and then go to React. And then I would probably spend a lot more time in React just because there's so much more to do, so much more to learn and uh, so many different ways to do it. But also I think like 90% of the job postings for front-end developers want React experience. So. Yeah, it's a very popular choice everywhere out there constantly, yeah. Yeah, I would agree with what Mike said there, but I would say instead of just learning one framework, and this is a huge toll, a huge load to take on, but if you do have the time, try building the same component in different frameworks and view libraries. Try building it in Vue, try building it in Spelt, try building it in Solid, and then you really learn how a framework differs from others. Like even just build like a bunch of components or go to GitHub, like there's there's a bunch of stuff that always comes out and you can go look through the source code and see what each component does and make an accordion component, right? And try making it in Svelte, try making it in Vue, try making it in React, see the differences. And a lot of times it's very small changes and see the kind of style that you like that makes sense to you and then go from there. One thing to be aware of, of course, is that you might end up taking shortcuts to copy paste the code. So don't copy paste, try to do the same thing over again, like actually do it in different frameworks. I think that might be a good way to go about it. But in terms of the future, I think that we'll start to see more integration with multi-page applications as opposed to single page applications. So the difference there would be that you actually maintain different state, like as opposed to having like one global, say model service or store service that you integrate with, you have a different instance of that service, right? So it's not in the same way as you might think of like a single page application where there's, there might be one source of truth on the server, but each page is managed separately. So. I think the MPA side will continue to grow. We see that with Next, we see that with Nuxt, we see it with, I don't really think, I don't know if Nuxt is actually an MPA, but it can be. So Astro is another example. I've been playing around with Astro a lot and I like it. I think there are some points where it lacks, but you have to know those, you have to play around with all the different technologies. Now, what I don't think is the future are actually web components. And this is a hot take, but I definitely see the use case for web components but I don't see them growing in the same way that all the library components grow, right? And you're starting to see this now with a lot of libraries, including variants for different frameworks. So if you can integrate with all the frameworks out there, then of course you're better off. But the problem is now you're maintaining three different versions of the same code. So learning to take your logic and decentralize it, so to speak, so make it more accessible and maybe generic, that's a skill that I think will be more 
important moving forward in the front end side of things, just like we were talking about with the backend side with the microservices architecture. If you can do the same thing and you can take away or abstract your code away from the library, that's going to get you one step closer to migrating whenever Meta decides to discontinue React, or maybe that won't happen. Maybe jQuery will come to the rescue again. I don't know. The only way to know is just to see what happens and find out. But hedging your bets on one technology, well, that's technical debt, but that doesn't mean that you can't write your code in a way that it's modular. But I don't know if that might not be important to the company. It always depends on the situation, right? Maybe just do a quick and dirty. Maybe that's the philosophy of the company. But for the most part, I think the future will involve more robust solutions that are abstracted away from the frameworks. But that's my opinion, right? Like, I see this sort of changing on a regular basis. Technology changes so quickly. So we'll see what happens. But I think in general, it will involve more abstract solutions that can be applied to different tech stacks. That's a great answer. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't heard of that multi-page application concept. MPA called it. I'll have to look into that after because, yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, that was awesome. Any other questions before uh, we move on to plugs? I, I just had one last thing. I was thinking back to the, the mindfulness session. And there's there's yeah. one important thing that I, I missed out on telling the listeners. And one thing I just wanted to add was uh, just, just meditation, right? Um, I mentioned a lot of physical things, yoga, climbing, everything else, but having a nice meditation practice is great for people just to, you know, unload their mind, you know, and you can get apps that you can look up on how to do that. But, you know, and it's something that just, you can even do it while you're sitting in your chair, right? So that was the last thing I just wanted to add. Yeah, no, actually I was thinking about that too during the break. And one of the things that I realized is we need to make these little bits of meditation accessible. So whether it's walking or jogging or sitting down at a different place in your home, it needs to be accessible or else you won't do it. So make it as easy as you can for yourself so that you can take those breaks and give yourself, your mind, the rest that it needs. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, that was great, Philip. Uh, again, uh, that, that's Philip Young. Now, Philip, where can we find you? How can our listeners connect with you online, whether it's on GitHub, LinkedIn? How do people reach out to you if they have questions? Oh, sure. Yeah. So you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Philip Young on there. I, I know there's a number of us <laughs> in, based out of Calgary here. So that's probably the best way to get in touch with me. So we'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, that's Philip sure. at P-H-I-L- IP, Philip, not two L's. Yes, one yes. L. Philip Young, and uh, we'll put the show, put the link in the show notes. And uh, you don't have a website or anything, just uh, no social media, I'm guessing. <laughs> just that for now, yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, that's great. Thanks so much for coming on, Philip. No problem. Thanks very much for having me.